All right. Good morning, ladies. It's a great joy to be with you again. Uh, so thankful for you and uh, for your ministry in this church. I'm thankful for the culture of Wellspring at Grace Bible Church. Uh, I love the way it trickles through and invades all of the relationships and other ministries of the church. And just so I'm thankful for your commitment to this ministry and for the disciplines that are involved. And, uh, just your love for Christ and His Word that's evidence. Um, I'd love for you to open your Bibles this morning in Revelation chapter 2. And uh, we're going to look at Jesus' evaluation letter to the church at Ephesus. This Sunday, we're celebrating a 15th anniversary for Grace Bible Church. It's pretty exciting. Um, and anniversaries are often a time of reflection. I know Janet and I, on our anniversary weekend, we will uh, stop and think through our lives. Uh, we'll think through where we've been, where we're headed, and we use our home, our physical house, and all the rooms in our house to think through the various areas of our lives. And so we'll think about, okay, how's the kitchen? Um, and that means something to us about an area of life we're going to evaluate. Okay, how, how's the kids' room? And that means something to us. And we go through the various rooms and talk about the various aspects of our lives and sort of evaluate. Where do we see God's grace? Where do we want to improve things? What do we need to change? Um, I don't know if you do that on your birthday. Every time a, a year goes by, you think, I've been on this earth this long, and I've made this of myself? Come on, when am I going to grow up? Um, maybe you don't think, maybe that's just me. Um, New Year's uh, Day tends to be a, a cultural self-evaluation phenomenon. Um, the church at Ephesus, by the time they receive this letter from Jesus, is probably around 40 years old. And think about that in, in the life of a church. 40 years. What kinds of clutter builds up in the life of a church in 40 years? What kind of patterns are established in the life of a church in 40 years? What kind of good things in a track record of a faithful church are present in a church over 40 years? What things need to change? And what a kindness of God that Jesus himself would shepherd his church, and specifically seven local churches in Asia Minor, it's now modern-day Turkey, um, seven physical literal bodies of believers that received direct letters from Jesus as sort of an audit, an evaluation, a top-to-bottom look at what is the church, how is it doing, from the inside out, motivations, activities, uh, where are the church's strengths, weaknesses. These seven churches all received personal evaluations from Jesus. What would it look like if Jesus stepped into your life and in a, in a very literal way gave you a written evaluation of your heart, of your activities? What if he did that with Wellspring? What if he did that with Grace Bible Church? What might Jesus see? What might he commend? What might he correct? Uh, we get to see in the letter to the church at Ephesus a window into Jesus' evaluation of believers. I'm going to invite us to read together Revelation 2, 1-7. to here God is speaking uh, through the Apostle John to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, 
and they are not. And you found them to be false. You have perseverance. You have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, we come to your word. And we come to a penetrating section of your word. All of scripture is sharper than a two-edged sword, able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. But this letter, this text, addresses us. Even as it addressed your church at Ephesus nearly two millennia ago. God, I pray that we would have ears to hear. I pray that you would use these words to refresh and renew a love for you in our own hearts and our own lives uh, in this church. And that it would be a perpetual discipline for us to refresh this love. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The church at Ephesus was uniquely privileged. In fact, it's hard to find a church with a better pedigree of church leadership. Paul spent three years there, uh, seeing the church founded, probably somewhere 53 to 57 AD, uh, on his third missionary journey. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila, the husband and wife team, uh, had given their lives over to making the gospel known in every city they went. Uh, They spent time at Ephesus at its founding. Apollos, the man who was mighty in the scriptures, Uh, leading many to faith in Jesus. Of course, Timothy was a pastor at Ephesus. 1 Timothy, the letter was written there in 65 AD by Paul, and the 2 Timothy was written to Timothy while he pastored there in 67 to 68 AD. And it seems that John the Apostle from 66 AD on uh, was a pastor in that region and spent time at Ephesus. So Priscilla and Aquila, Apollos, Paul the Apostle, Timothy, and the Apostle John. What a remarkable... Yeah, who's your pastor? Those guys. Pretty remarkable pedigree. In Acts 19 and 20, we see that the church itself was birthed under persecution. In a very pagan world, you had the seven sons of Sceva attacking the church, Demetrius the silversmith attacking the church. There was emperor worship. There was cult worship of Diana, uh, prominent in the culture and the city. And we see the letter in the letter to the Ephesians from the Apostle Paul. In the first three chapters, he establishes them in sound doctrine, a high view of God, an amazing picture of the God-centered nature of our salvation, the amazing love for sinners from God through Jesus Christ and the gospel. Paul establishes them in rich, deep, thick doctrine. In Ephesians 4.14, they're encouraged to have their eyes open and to be discerning, not taken sway by every passing trend and fad and fancy that sweeps through the churches. In 417, they were encouraged to walk differently than the world around them. There would have been a remarkable contrast between a believer in the church at Ephesus and an unbeliever in the city of Ephesus. Much more than the contrast we see on a day-to-day basis between believers in the church and unbelievers in our world. 
In chapter 5, there are warnings about compromise with the surrounding world. In the letters that went to its pastor, First and Second Timothy, you get encouragements again and again about false teaching, false doctrine, the danger of false ideas. In Acts 20, Paul himself meets with the Ephesian elders, thinking it's the last time he's going to see them. And he warns them to hold on to the faith, to care for one another, because from among them, from among the elders of the church at Ephesus, there would be wolves in sheep's clothing who come along and lead people astray. Now, if you were Paul and you knew who they were, right, if you could shine a black light on the false teacher wolf in sheep's clothing tattoo, uh, you, you would boot the guy right then. But that couldn't be known. So a group of men, by all appearances godly men, leading the church... Some of those guys are going to lead the church astray. With all of these dangers in view, uh, this church to the letter at Ephesus, 40 years after its founding, comes as a very pleasant surprise. The church still exists. <laughs> and the commendations the church receives are strong. Again, it's hard to think of a church with a, a richer history or stronger leadership. So what is Jesus' evaluation of the church? Now, this comes in letter form. Uh, there are a number of parts to this letter. There's a salutation, a commendation, a confrontation, a command, a plea, and a promise. I think you have those there on your outline. That will be our outline for today. We'll begin first with a salutation. This is a greeting. Of course, greeting doesn't rhyme with Asia, so you've got to say salutation. <laughs> Verse 1. Here's the greeting from Jesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write... First of all, uh, let's think about Ephesus just a little bit. Ephesus had become the center of evangelism in Asia. The church at Ephesus was the place from which the gospel went all over the area that is now modern Turkey. And uh, if you remember your, I don't know what it is, sophomore year in high school geography, that section of the world is sort of the bridge between Europe and Asia. And so everything went through there, trade and commerce and everything else. In fact, Ephesus was a wealthy trading city. And it was the seat of the Roman government in that region. So when a Roman official went anywhere in the region, he was required by law to stop in Ephesus. It had a 25,000-seat stadium, so it was a sports complex. It was a trading center. It was wealthy. Uh, one, of the, one of the great um, uh, wonders of the ancient world was one particular structure in Ephesus, and it was the Temple of Diana. And if you want to see it, you can go to Nashville because they've recreated it in downtown Nashville. Okay? Uh, 425 by 220 feet by 60 feet high. It is a massive stone structure held up by these giant columns. 36 or 127 marble pillars. Um, 27 of them coated with gold and jewels. Uh, the one in Nashville just is just stone. They didn't put gold on it for some reason. Um, but it was populated by thousands of cult priests and priestesses who functioned as prostitutes in the name of religion. Uh, the religion was a fertility religion, and it was marked by zealous immorality. And it was the heart of the city. It was the feature of the city. It was the, uh, uh, what do you call it when you go visit someplace? Tourism. It was like the, the tourist attraction of the city. It was what put Ephesus on the map. Inside 
Diana's temple was an inviolable inner sanctum where the worst criminals of the world could go and not be chased, not be prosecuted, not be caught. It was a safe zone. It was base. My kids, when we we start wrestling and tackling, they're always making up a new base. Wherever they are, I'm on base, Dad. Well, that was base for them. The worst of criminals could not be uh, caught there. In fact, that held true even after the city of Ephesus fell apart. Centuries later, uh, it was a long time uh, before the barbarian hordes made it to Ephesus, uh, undermining the Roman Empire, and finally violated Diana's temple. So even after the city lost its prominence, even after the cult prostitution kind of went away, it still was an asylum for criminals that was not violated. Uh, In the city, there were also two temples dedicated to the imperial cult. Uh, The emperors began to be worshipped. The the coinage in the city reflected the emperor, and they called the emperors God and the savior of the world. Uh, In many of the cities of Asia Minor, you actually had to pay tribute to the emperor, offer a sacrifice to the emperor and worship to him in order to receive your fries food card. Um, In in other words, to buy groceries. Um, You couldn't get into Costco without your stamp that said, I worship the emperor this year. Right, So um, the trade guilds prohibited people from working in the trades without their stamp that they had worshipped to the emperor. So, and, and it's not that you actually had to worship him from the heart. You just had to go do the thing and get the stamp. But you know that a Christian couldn't do that. The Jews didn't have to do that either because at that time in the first century they had a special dispensation under the Roman government to practice Judaism and not worship the emperor. So, Christians were initially thought of as Jews. But when the Jews, who hated this talk of Jesus of Nazareth being a Messiah who was crucified, the Jews who didn't believe had incentive to kick the Christians out of the synagogues, to take them out from under the protective banner of Judaism, and to be their own separate sect. And that put them in danger of persecution. Persecution from the Romans for not worshipping the emperor. Persecution from the trade guilds and others for not worshipping Diana. And persecution from the Jews who considered them a cult following a false messiah. A lot of pressure to be a Christian in Ephesus. Ephesus. And then Jesus, as part of the salutation, says, uh, or directs attention to himself. He says, to the church of Ephesus, write this. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. As Jesus addresses each one of these churches, he begins his salutation with a description of himself. And all of these harken back to chapter 1. We won't take the time to read all of verses 9 through 20. But there Jesus is uncloaked, unveiled. And the disciple whom Jesus loved, the disciple who at the Last Supper was leaning against Jesus at the dinner table, is now on his face as a dead man before the unveiled second person of the Trinity in all of his glory. With eyes like fire, with his feet like burnished bronze just coming out of the furnace, with his eye, with his hair like white wool, shining like the blazing sun, and his voice like the thundering of many waters. Now, what would it be like if somebody talked and it sounded like Niagara Falls? And John falls down as a dead man before Jesus. They had been friends during Jesus' earthly ministry. And here John catches a glimpse of the Holy One. 
And like Isaiah before him, at seeing Jesus unveiled, John falls down his bed. And Jesus comes and comforts him. And he says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one, verse 18. I was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. And he tells John to write. In verse 20, he says, you saw seven stars. Those that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. Those seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So that's exactly what Jesus picks up on in verse 1 of chapter 2. The one with the stars in his hands who walks among the lampstands says this. Now, what is this an emblem of? I think this is a picture of if the, if the stars are the angels of the churches... Um, that helps us remember, number one, that what goes on around church is not just mechanical and human and earthly. But it has something to do with that which transcends what we see. There are cosmic realities. In Ephesians, Paul has already told this church that God is doing something through the mystery of Jew and Gentile together in one body, one new man, the church, that is a display of his wisdom and power and love. And he's putting that on display to the powers that be. His enemy powers, uh, the demons, Satan, and also the angels. God is putting on display through earthly things like church his great and immense wisdom to the cosmos. The fact that these seven churches each have an angel that relates to them somehow reminds us that what we're doing here is not just earthly things. It's not just business administration, you know, put a bunch of plates on a bunch of poles, get them to spin, and make this thing work. Get the doors open on Sunday mornings and run the programs. And the No, these are cosmic things we're doing. Right? This isn't like any other enterprise. The church is unique. The other indication here is that Jesus is the one who possesses the churches. He walks among the lampstands. He's evaluating. He knows what's going on. They are his. And he holds them in his right hand. Jesus is in charge of the church. Jesus is sovereign over the church. Jesus is present among the churches. He is concerned for the churches. He inspects them. He knows what takes place in the churches. And fundamentally, the church is called a lampstand. What is a lampstand for? They stand for a lamp. You understand the church is not the light. The church is a stand for the light, a platform for the light. What's the light? Sunday school answer. It's Jesus. <laughs> yeah, he's the light. Jesus is the light that the lampstands are to display. That's the mission of the church. We move in verse 2 to a commendation. It begins with these simple words. Jesus says, I know. I know. That's comforting. What would it be like to be in the church at Ephesus, to be surrounded by pagan, immoral idolatry, to be surrounded by a political system which was also religious, which demanded worship of the emperor, to be desynagogued from those who claimed to love God and hold on to the Bible, and to be on our own, this thing called the church? It'd be tough. Jesus says, I know. No. Uh, that's also disconcerting, right? If Jesus were auditing my heart, I would be comforted that he would know some things. And I uh, would be disconcerted that he knows some things. And he does. He knows. 
He says, I know your deeds. That's their life and their conduct in keeping with Christ's likeness. The Ephesian believers actually lived out their faith, and Jesus knows it. He says, I know your toil. And the word there is an all-out effort to the point of exhaustion. He says, I know that. I know what you've done on, on my behalf. He says, I know your perseverance. That is a courageous acceptance of hardship, of suffering, and of loss. And he says, I know your intolerance. We think intolerance is a bad word. Um, You don't tolerate everything that could possibly go into your mouth. You're discriminatory in what you eat on purpose. You ought to be discriminatory in what goes into your brain, what goes through your eyes, what goes into your heart. Here, Jesus praises their intolerance of what? Of evil men, of imposters, of Wolves. Remember that warning that Paul gave in Acts 20? There's going to be wolves among you and it's going to come from the elder board. Guess what? 40 years later, they didn't tolerate it. That's good. This is commendable. They had an ongoing inability to bear false teachers. They were discerning. And he says, I know the trouble you've experienced. Trouble from the outside. Uh, You know, from the church's birth, the seven sons of Sceva and Demetrius and an angry mob in Acts 19, to the temple of Artemis, to the emperor cult, to the Jews, to the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans, down in verse 15, um, he says, oh, not verse 15. Where are the Nicolaitans? Verse 6, he says, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. You you can't tolerate what they're about. Um, Who are these Nicolaitans? I believe these Nicolaitans are the disciples of a guy named Nicholas. Nicholas was one of the proto-deacons in Acts 6, set up to free up the apostles to, to preach and to pray by serving tables for the Gentile widows who weren't having their needs met. He was a, he, uh, evaluated, um, perceived as a godly man who held on to good doctrine, and Nicholas defected. And the defection that Nicholas went to was a defection to... <coughs> Christianity in name, immorality in practice. This is sort of the Jesus-only culture of the first century. Uh, There's a a prominent evangelical, Jesus-centered, gospel-centered movement in our day in, in American churches that says, call yourself a Christian, focus on Jesus, it's all by grace, so it doesn't matter what you do. Uh, I, I am to, you know, for good or for ill, occasionally following the blogs from leadership in my own church that I came from in Nashville. And they've bought into all of this. And it's, look what I smoke. Look what I drink. Look what I watch. And don't say anything to me about it because I have Jesus and it's all of grace. Okay, That's the Nicolaitan heresy. You claim Jesus in name and by grace and you live like the Ephesian culture. The Nicolaitans, Nicolaitans promoted this very thing. In, in fact, the idea that you would participate in the Ephesian religious culture, i.e. Diana, and still claim to be a Christian, was okay. That's how serious this was. And Jesus commends him and says, you hate them. <laughs> and Jesus also says, I hate them. There was trouble from outside the church. There was trouble inside the church. False apostles, deluded, self-deceived deceivers. And they weren't claiming to destroy Christianity. 
but offering a new version of it, corrupting it from the inside. They were posers, wolves, and false teachers. And Jesus commends the church for their endurance and their perseverance. He says, you've persevered for my name's sake. And he gives them a paradoxical commendation. You have toiled to the point of weariness, and yet you're not weary. And you've done that for my name's sake. The Ephesian church had practical holiness, theological discernment. They were uncomfortable with compromise. They suffered for the name of Jesus. They were exhausted in their loyalty to Christ, but they were not exhausted of their loyalty to Christ. They were a mature, established, tested, and seasoned body of believers. And you and I ought to take some cues from that commendation. Right? Let's not rush past this. What Jesus says they were doing right is a cue for us. We ought to do the things that Jesus commends. But there's a confrontation. And it comes in verse 4. Jesus says, But I have this against you. Stop right there. That's heavy. If Jesus were to stand in front of Grace Bible Church on a 15th anniversary, he's not planning to do that, I don't think. And say, I have this against you. We would listen. We would listen. Do we have ears to hear this this morning? This is the scary part of the audit. Jesus tells the Ephesian church, you have left your first love. The word for left here is a definite and sad departure. It's the word used for a divorce or abandonment. And what does Jesus mean here by first love? We can come up with some ideas. What should the Christian's first love be? Is this a love for God? Is this a love for one another? A new commandment Jesus gave us that we love one another? Um, Is this love for the lost? And he just states it generally. You've left your first love. And literally, he says, you left the love you had at the first. Okay, so he's not talking here about uh, uh, the, the first priority of your love. What do you love the mostest? That's not what he's saying. He's saying, um, remember how you loved at the first? This is the honeymoon period of the church. Do you remember what that was like? It was in 1980 that Air Florida Flight 90 took off from Washington National Airport. And they had gone through a series of de-icing programs for the airplane. And ice continued to build up and accumulate. They were flying from Washington down to Florida. Um, They were behind schedule. Uh, They decided to take off. The de-icing had happened, and then they waited in a long time to taxi out to the runway. When they finally took off, ice had built back up on the wings, on the engines. And when the they pushed forward the throttles, rumbling down the runway, the co-pilot says to the pilot, and this is on the recording, he says, hey, those numbers don't look right. We're not getting all the power we should be getting. And the captain says, no, 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 they're fine, they're fine. And he's calling out the numbers, and they rotate, they pull back on the yoke and the airplane takes off but barely in a stalling condition it's not quite able to fly not going fast enough and it crashed plummeted onto the uh, was it the 9th street bridge in Washington D.C. 
killed four people in their vehicles on the bridge, and the airplane went into the icy Potomac River, plunged through the ice into the cold water. Seventy-four people were killed. Six were rescued. Lenny Skutnik was a, a clerk at the Washington Congressional Budget Office, driving by, jumps out of his truck when he sees all the commotion, throws off his work boots, and jumps into the river. And he grabs a hold of Priscilla Tirado. And Priscilla was a flight attendant on the aircraft. And when a helicopter hovered overhead with a rope, her hands were so frozen she couldn't grab the rope. She was helpless and hopeless and dead. Though not yet. Lenny Scutnick jumped in, grabbed a hold of her, grabbed the rope, and brought her back to shore. What does Priscilla think about this clerk from the Congressional Budget Office? Forever grateful. Do you ever think she might just get past what he did for her? Kind of forget about it. No, that, that event would forever shape the rest of her earthly existence. She would probably remember back to those moments, vivid detail. What was it like when he rescued me? Do you remember your rescue? Do you remember what it was like when you didn't even know to grab a rope, and if you knew to grab a rope, you weren't able to do it, and you needed to be absolutely saved by God's grace? When you were hopeless, helpless, spiritually dead. Remember the first time you remembered you were a sinner in danger of the holiness of God. And you needed a substitute. You needed someone to take away your sin. You needed forgiveness. And Jesus was there. And Jesus went to a cross to pay for your sin. You think about that. Do you remember what you've been saved from? Do you remember whom you've been saved by? And do you regularly reflect on what you've been saved to? God has been so kind to us. What is it like to return to our first love? It, it means coming back to a fresh memory of our rescue. To renew our affections for God himself. God our Savior. God who was our judge. And now God who is our infinite treasure. I believe that the love that Jesus had in mind here involves all three. Love for God, love for one another, and love for the lost. And they all flow out of the first. We love God because he first loved us. And the love of God shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit produces a vertical affection for God. If that's not there, you're not a believer. Right? This is what God does in those who believe. We love him. We love Him. And a love for God overflows into a love for one another. You begin to love what God loves. And God loves His people. And God has given us this commandment to love one another, and, and so we do. And this also produces a love for those who have not yet been rescued. We see the plane crash. I'm going to allegorize Lenny Skutnik for a moment. We see the plane crash, we jump out of our truck, we kick off our work boots, and we jump in the river. Because we know what it was like to have been rescued. If you love Jesus, you'll be drawn to what he loves. You'll love his bride, the church. 
And if you love Jesus, we'll love our neighbor. Right? And in Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, who is our neighbor? It's everybody. And we need to love them with the gospel. All of these things flow out of love for Christ. If you notice your love for brothers and sisters in the church is waxing cold, you know what that indicates? That's a, that's a warning light. That's an indicator light. That's your check engine light. Mm-hmm. Something's wrong in your love for God. If your love for the lost has grown cold, the check engine light has come on. Your love for God has grown cold. What does Jesus say about the church at Ephesus? They had abandoned their first love. See, the Ephesian church was guilty of doing lots of work on their lampstand without paying attention to the light for which the lampstand exists. Right? How good is the lampstand without the lamp? It's a, it's a paperweight. It's a collectible, collecting dust on a shelf. Doing a lot of work on that lampstand, you've got it polished up real nice. Um, Where's the light? See, it's possible to do church without Jesus. What does Jesus say about that? About us doing things for him while our love for him grows dim? Well, here's a a command, verse 5. Remember, repent, and return. Remember, repent, and return. Um, The remember there is a go on continuing to remember from where you have fallen. You have fallen. You're in a state of fallenness. And we don't mean unsaved here, but we mean um, you're not where you used to be. You've descended from the heights of your affections for Jesus. Remember and keep on remembering. And he says, repent, take deliberate, decisive change of attitude, resulting in a change of action. And he says, return, return. This is the fruit of repentance. Again, return to the things you used to do when love for me was at the center. You see, the church at Ephesus had allowed the fruits of love for Christ to replace love for Christ. Love for Christ was to be the blazing center of the church, and they had replaced it subtly, imperceptibly, with the fruits of a blazing love for Christ. And it's easy to see how that could happen. A church birthed in the gospel and everything's new, and the church at Ephesus took 50,000 days wages worth of magic books that they owned and burned them in the city square. That is a fruit of a radical repentance. I belong to Jesus, no matter what it costs. They gladly faced rejection, persecution, and with that persecution comes isolation, right? If, if my Jewish family doesn't like me anymore because I love this renegade Messiah, if I just got fired from my job, if it's hard to buy groceries, who are my friends? Well, my friends are in this room. My friends are in the church at Ephesus, and and, and we sort of start to build a fortress around ourselves. Well, we're going to homeschool our kids. Um, 
we're going to put ourselves in nothing against homeschooling. I'm just saying you do everything you can to isolate yourself from everything. We're going to grow our own food inside the church. Tear out the center part of the ceiling right there, and we're going to have a garden. Uh, we don't have to go to the grocery store anymore. Um, we're going to become effective uh, communists, right? Okay, that sounded like a good idea, right? You'll still go to Sprouts. And they just begin to build a defensive posture against the world around them. It's easy to see how that happens. Pretty soon, uh, everyone is looking over their shoulder for a defector. Is there somebody in here that's going to defect, be a false teacher, be a wolf? We were told to be wary, be skeptical, be concerned. And all of a sudden, we're now the, the theology police and the heresy hunters in our own ranks, right? Something that Jesus commanded, something that Jesus commended, something that Jesus praised in a heart of fear and isolation becomes something perverted. We're always looking now to find somebody who's going to teach something that's just off theologically. We're always checking to see if somebody's going to compromise morally. And it's not long before a church in that posture begins to pride itself in its theological purity, in its moral rectitude, in its ability to discern error within and without. And the central thing, the thing that makes a church a church, the reason the lampstand exists, the fire and the light of Jesus is no longer shining. And a generation has gone by since the book of Ephesians was penned, and the church at Ephesus is in danger of going out of existence. What is Jesus warning here? I will remove the lampstand. The machinery of the church is still operating. The doors are open on Sundays. The Awana program is... We don't have Awana. Anybody grow up with Awana? You know what that is. That's still happening on Wednesday nights. Sermons are preached. Songs are sung. Error is pointed out. Sin is exposed. Compromisers are run out of town. But the defining characteristic of the church, the defining characteristic of the Christian, is gone. Love has left the building. It can't be a church without it. But this is no mere trifle. This is a fatal flaw. Look what Jesus says in verse 5. Or else I am coming. Now this isn't an eschatological reference to the end times when Jesus comes back to set up his kingdom. Uh, This is a visitation for removal of the church. Church can't survive merely on what it is against. It can't define itself merely by what it is against. The church must be characterized, defined by, and driven by love. And you know, I don't mean love uh, as an ambiguous idea that the world thinks about. We, we mean a very specific love. The love of God for God, manifested in God's love for sinners through Jesus Christ in the gospel, overflowing into biblical love, discerning love, morally upright love for one another in the body of Christ, and an evangelistic love for the lost. Love is the lifeblood of the church. And if it is not, the church can no longer exist. The plea is in verse 5. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is a way uh, for Jesus to say, if, if you're uh, tuning into this frequency, you can hear it. Right? If you dial up your radio to a certain frequency, 
um, and nothing's being broadcast, you're not going to hear it. Or if somebody is broadcasting on a frequency and nobody's tuned into it, nobody's going to hear it. But if the broadcast is happening and you're tuned into that frequency, you're going to hear what's being said. Jesus' plea here is, you who are spiritual, listen to what I'm saying. Right? The natural man doesn't understand the spiritual things of God. But the one who's been made alive by the Spirit, listen to what Jesus is saying. It says, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Did you notice that plural there in verse 7? That means there is direct application to Wellspring in 2016. This isn't just, you believers at Ephesus and you only, listen to what I'm saying. No. He who has ears to hear, broadcasting everywhere. If you have ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. And the promises to him who overcomes, that is a believer, the nikao, Nike, the overcomer, the victor, he gets to participate in the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Um, that is a direct shot at Diana. In that inner sanctum in the temple of Artemis or Diana uh, was this great big huge tree. And that tree was the symbol of fertility, and it was also the home of the asylum for the worst criminals. You know what Jesus is saying? To you who believe, you who have been the worst of criminals, you get to participate in the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The Ephesian believers would have known exactly what Jesus was referring to in that promise. Everything that, everything that the Ephesian culture around you thinks that they're promising, that's a sham. It's emptiness. But Jesus has the real thing. Hold on. Persevere. Overcome. In other words, believe, hold steadfast. How did the church respond? Church history tells us that the church at Ephesus repented collectively as a church and maintained their lampstand status for several generations to come. It's encouraging. Um, the church at Ephesus, you, you can't Google map that today. Right? It, it was the Ottoman Empire. Uh, it was the Turks. Now it's Turkey. Uh, it's an Islamic region in its entirety. Uh, the, the church's lampstand has been removed at some point. There's a lesson there, too. There aren't really any 2,000-year-old faithful Bible churches. Uh, in God's providence, um, individual manifestations of the church don't seem to last. Why? Because they're populated by people like us. <laughs> people defect. People grow weary. People go through the motions people abandon their first love. Ladies, what, what is the relationship between the wellspring disciplines and this encouragement from Jesus to the church at Ephesus? Any thoughts? It's keeping your, your heart near God's word. Yeah. That's the first thing. Yeah. Keep your heart near God's word. And, and when you're bringing your heart before God's word, what are you doing? What is your mindset? Yeah, to meet with him. Right? This is why we're not going to the word primarily to win a theological argument, mm -hmm. to find the latest parenting tip, to improve my marriage, to whatever. That's not the first thing we're going there for. We're, we're going there to meet God, to meet with God, to have our hearts inflamed with love for him, to be in awe of him, to fear him, to love him. And to have that love flow out in other things. And of course, when Jesus directs us in relationship to the various 
uh, areas and categories of our lives. Of course we want to obey. We want to do those things. And, and it's going to lead to lead to prosperity and life in those areas. Uh, that, that's the way God's economy works. So we're glad to do those things, but the foundation of them is God himself. He's the treasure. He's our love. What else? Discipline too. What's the relationship of this to discipline too? Love for God spills over into your home. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, this mindset ought to affect our home. And and not just Jesus' confrontation, but also his commendation. Right? Uh, wives and moms ought to be theologically discerning and know when error is creeping into the home. And run it out like a wolf in sheep's clothing. Mm-hmm. And that isn't the totality of the flavor of your home. It isn't even the fuel for the flavor of your home. Discernment is not the only thing that should flavor your home. But love for God. Right? That's the fuel. Christ himself is the light. What else? What about outside your home? I said it at the beginning this morning, I'm so thankful for Wellspring and the way the flavor, the culture uh, that is in this room spills out into the lives of this church. You know, if, if your pastor's begin to preach um, hoity-toity, theological, academic lectures, abandoning love for Jesus, you would not tolerate it. I'm thankful for that. We would be in trouble. Thank you. Um, the, the weight, the gravity, the pull that you ladies have in your homes and beyond is significant. And it matters what you do in the privacy of your own devotional time with God. Because it flavors your home. And what you do in your home that you think nobody sees besides Jesus. um, That spills out into the lives of others. It affects the way you disciple other ladies. It affects what you love. It affects how you respond to what you hear in various contexts in the church. It affects the way you serve in various ministries in the church. And of course it affects what you think about and how you impact the world around us that doesn't yet know Jesus. Joshua 23.11 Take diligent heed to yourselves to love Yahweh your God. Let's pray. God, we ask that we would do just that. That we would take diligent heed to ourselves to love you. Remind us of that first love. Refresh our hearts, renew our hearts in that. Recalibrate our affections. I pray that our behavior and our thoughts and our motivations and our priorities would flow out of that. God, I thank you for these ladies. I pray that they would excel still more in their devotional pursuit of you in the way that it affects their own lives, their homes, and the rest of the world around them. We pray it for your glory in Jesus' name. Thank you.